Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, lads and gents, whatever you want to call yourself. Okay, I'll call you whatever you want to be called. Welcome to the show. My name is Brendan. This is the State of the Universe. It's been two months, two whole months since the most recent episode. You might have thought I died. All right? You might have thought I caught COVID and I died. And that is, in fact, not what happened. Okay, what happened was thesis writing season began. That means I had to write a thesis. What is a thesis, you might say? A thesis is where you write 7,000 pages of highly technical scientific jargon. You hate yourself. And every 60 or 70 hours, you think, should I kill myself right now? Would it be better right now if I jumped out the second story window and plummeted to the concrete below? Would it be better if I did that right now? That's what a thesis is, all right? But we made it out. Back to programming as usual. Back to life as normal. Back to uploading as normal. Life returns. I come back to life, okay? I haven't even eaten in two months. I come back to the universe around me. I, I plug myself back into society. The pandemic is still raging. The pandy, still alive and well. What else is fun, though, is that today's episode features Dr. Dan Hooper, who is the senior scientist and the head of the theoretical astrophysics group at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. He is also an associate professor in the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Chicago. The man, he does it all. All right, he's a musician, he plays in bands, he, he's everything. He wrote three books. I encourage you to check them out. They're all very good. Dark Cosmos, Nature's Blueprint, and then most recently came out at the end of 2019, At the Edge of Time. That is a fantastic book, which touches on many of the topics we're going to talk about today, which are some of the biggest questions in all of physics. I had him on because one of the things he's a real expert in is particle physics. And there was recently a huge story in the realm of particle physics that I really wanted to talk to him about. That story was a story that broke on April 8th. On April 8th, the media world goes crazy. The scientific journalism world goes crazy. And you start, start seeing these articles pop up everywhere claiming NASA detects a parallel universe. So naturally, I'm running around, I'm like, is there a parallel universe? Did NASA detect a parallel universe? What is happening here? What is going on? All right, and it has everything to do with a telescope at the South Pole called ANITA. And that is why Dr. Dan Hooper is here today to talk to us about this. Did NASA detect a parallel universe? We got to talk about it. We got to talk about it. All right, where is it? Can we get in it? Can we go to it? What's going on here? Is it real? Is it bullshit? Could be bullshit. Sounds like it could be bullshit. We're going to get all the questions answered. Furthermore, we talk about dark matter, we talk about dark energy, we talk about all of that in the realm of particle physics. We talk about the biggest questions in science. Can they be answered? Are we spinning our wheels, so to speak, on a lot of these questions? And how do we get to the next step of understanding the universe? He's also the host of a podcast titled Why This Universe. Go check that podcast out. He hosts, co-hosts it with uh, his co-host, Shelma Wegsman. And it is like a popular science book that became a podcast. It's very short, 20-minute episodes, 30-minute episodes, where they break down a highly technical topic in, in layman's terms. And, and you can walk away with a true understanding, uh, at least a basic understanding, of a lot of super complex topics. So it's a super good, well-produced, informative podcast. Please go give it a listen. Go give it a five-star rating, all right? Now, speaking of babbling, because all I'm doing is babbling. So speaking of babbling... Go give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, please. It helps us become number one. Don't you want us to be number one? You know this is a grade A podcast. Don't you want us to be number one? Last week, we were number one in Cambodia and Pakistan. Why? Because people 
in Cambodia and Pakistan leave good reviews. They leave us five-star reviews. They say this is a great A podcast. So please go help us out. Leave a five-star review, please. And if you're going to leave a one-star review, how do I know you're not a terrorist? You know what I'm saying? If you leave a one-star review, what guarantee is there that you are not actually a bioterrorist? I'm not sure. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who leaves a one-star review is a bioterrorist, but what I am saying is there is no guarantee that when you leave a one-star review that you are not, in fact, a bioterrorist. Some dude left me a one-star review the other day. Billy Lafferty. Is that his real name? I don't know. Is he a bioterrorist? Possibly. It's possible. It's po- We can't say he's not a bioterrorist. We can't say he's not a true, honest-to-goodness, anti-American terrorist. We don't know. So, don't be Billy. Don't be that. Is that even his real name? Can we get the FBI to look into this guy? What? This guy's insane. I'm coming for you, bucko, and we're bringing you down. You're trying to erode America from within, and we are not going to let it happen here on this Great A podcast. Thank you for listening, people. Go support the Patreon. You give us money. Become a Great A supporter. We give you merch. We give you books. We send you a bunch of shit. It's a dollar to join. Give as much as you want. I don't care what you give. I don't care if you join. I want you to join. I want you to support the show. You might have noticed that there's been some changes going on on the website, on the YouTube, and that sort of thing. The YouTube currently has no videos on it. We're making a ton of changes to the show, a ton of changes to the format, a ton of changes to the way we upload to YouTube. We're not putting full episodes on there anymore. We're going to put different types of content on there. I hope you like it going forward into the future. But with that being said, please enjoy the episode and give it up for the great Dr. Dan Hooper. Yeah, lately I've been going through Sturgill Simpson, too. Did I read that you're in an alternative country? Uh, I used to play an alt-country band, yeah. And okay. I like Sturgill Simpson. Simpson. I love um, Sturgill Simpson now. Yeah, I, I used to play in a band called Sawbuck, which we called alt-country. I mean, you know, different definitions for different people. But, sure. You know, um, it's like a bunch of punk rock guys more or less playing country music. Yeah. No, I, I love I love... That is one thing I love about music that I really didn't start to appreciate for the past like two years. By the way, we can just like make this the intro to the sort of conversation. So from sure. here, we'll just somehow tie this. I won't. Into, I won't say anything. I don't want to go yeah. uh, be broadcast. Tie from See, this I, I don't have that filter. I just say everything. That's why some people don't <laughs> love the show. Um, anyway, and some people don't think it's a great way to uh, deliver science or or physics. But that's the uh, that's the audience I want to reach. I want to reach you, the, man. I want to reach the audience of people who don't love the clean aspects of science and thus are detracted from pursuing it. Um, that's my goal. I didn't know that you were such a big music buff, and I didn't know you played music. And then I was listening to your podcast. I was listening to it, and you mentioned you had cats, too. And I feel like I'm like missing out on something in this field. I feel like I do not have the qualities that every other astrophysicist has. They own cats, all of them. Like, literally all of them own cats. I don't get it. And then, if I had a cat in my house, I would die. I would literally, I would die, I would be dead. Um, you have an allergy? Yes. Or? Yeah. Um, and then, number two, I cannot play music. I tried to play the banjo once. We might have talked about this. I tried to play the banjo, and I, I don't know why the banjo, not good. All right? And I tried to play the saxophone in fifth grade. Terrible. Um, big waste of my money. Sorry about that, mom. But yeah, the, like, I, I, I don't have either of them. I don't have either of the skills. There are an uncanny proportion of physicists and astrophysicists, astronomers, whatever, who are accomplished musicians. It, there, there is some connection there. I do not understand what it is. Um, maybe it's just like kind of personality types and 
people who kind of get obsessed about the stuff they're into. Maybe there's something about the way one's brain is wired that makes kind of mathematical reasoning and musical reasoning, you know, favor one another. I, I don't know. I really don't. Yeah. But um, there's a connection. I, yeah, I don't like Duncan Lorimer is a big name that comes to my head. He's a he's big into music. Moore McLaughlin, who I've had on the show, um, a whole bunch of people that I like an endless number of like everyone I get on here. It's like, yeah, I play in a band. I do it on the, on my free time. And Catherine then, Zurich is a professor at Caltech who works in stuff like I do, like dark mm-hmm. matter theory stuff, among other things. And she might be the single best piano player I've ever seen perform. I will have to reach out to her and see if I can get her on the show. There's a there's a whole range we could talk about. I could talk about music forever, um, hours, in fact. But we should probably talk about physics sometime today, Dan. Sounds um, great. Although, My other so, favorite thing. Yes. So one of the the things that has like science has been kind of out of the news for the pandy over except for obviously covid um but astro of epidemiology yeah (laughs) you know astrophysics it it seems like all the physicists too that i know are now epidemiologists in the sense that they're like doing modeling and stuff yeah they're really bad yeah oh they're they're really lousy epidemiologists they're, they're not good um they they're definitely not good i i hope they don't claim to be good um, but they're doing it, you know, there's some decent, I, I kind of like the, you know, the trends and the models that a lot of these people are, are putting out. I don't trust many of them, but I like to see them. They're kind of fun. And so I haven't seen a lot of physics and astronomy, but there has been one story that has kind of, I don't know, shaken the, the, the world, if you will. And mostly because it's nonsense. I don't know if it's nonsense. You, that's what you're here to tell me. Um, but I went to the, the hairdresser shortly after the story broke. And the story was the Anita Anomalous Events. Now, I remember all the way back in undergrad, like 2017-ish maybe, I remember this being a story. So I don't know how it – am I right about that? Was this a, a story all the way back then? Yeah, I, that sounds about right. Um, so – they actually they have these two anomalous events, and they were observing different flights. So there must have been a period of time where they had just one event like that, and maybe it was some some people were thinking about it. And then there was a second one on okay. a later flight. Yeah. So I think it was kind of spread out a bit on time. I see. Over time. So so I remember this happening, um, and, and we'll we'll give a breakdown of what I'm talking about here in a second. I just want to give some some backstory. And then there's another one of these uh, Anita anomalous events, which again, listeners will describe in a second. And I go to the the hairdresser this week. This is the first week that the the barbershops were open again in New York. I don't remember when that was. And my hairdresser, you know, they always ask you what you do and that sort of thing. And somehow this led to her asking me about NASA finding an alternative universe. And she was, was questioning me about, like, where this alternative universe is and how she can go, like, get into it and step into it. And it was the, the weirdest thing ever to me. Um, and... I don't know if you have good answers with this sort of thing, Dan, but when people start asking me those questions, it it almost feels like you're being interrogated and you're like in a cult and you're refusing to give the information. But but in reality, the, the answer is, uh, I think you, you misunderstood something. Um, I don't know. That's a weird one. Yeah, so it's a little bit of a tele- telephone game thing where some people said something that were mostly reasonable. Some people mm-hmm. took that and said something a little less reasonable. Some you know, science journalists wrote something that was considerably less reasonable. And then your hairstylist understood it incorrectly. Yep. And, you know, to ask you about it. You know, yeah. I, so, 
So let's break this break this down. Let's start at the at the very basic. Um, what is going on at the South Pole? Uh, neutrinos, neutrinos, neutrinos. Okay, you love them, Dan. We from the last I episode. I encourage people to go listen to the the, the previous episode uh, to to figure out how much Dan loves neutrinos. Um, but but you're a, a big fan of these things, and there's a lot of neutrino science going on at the South Pole. So can you sort of break some of this stuff down for us? Yeah. So when I was a grad student, I my PhD advisor was a guy named Francis Halsen, and he's kind of the uh, you know, the big figure behind the idea and, and then later management of, an, of a telescope called Ice Cube, which looks for high energy neutrinos. And it's at the South Pole. It's basically a big chunk of ice, like a cubic kilometer of ice with uh, instrumented detectors buried throughout it. And the idea is a, a neutrino comes along. Normally, mo- most neutrinos don't interact with anything, so you don't see them. But occasionally, a neutrino can scatter off of an uh, atom in, in the ice and create either a, tr- a particle called a muon, which travels through your detector, leaving a bunch of light and other energy, and you can detect that. Or instead of a muon, it creates a big thing we call a shower or a cascade, and it looks like a big explosion, and you can see that light. Um, in any case, you can use this to detect those neutrinos that can come from a variety of different astrophysical objects. We can learn not only about neutrinos this way, but also about things like gamma ray bursts and the black holes in the middle of active galaxies and things like this. So there's all sorts of science you can do. Another way that people are looking for neutrinos, but even at higher energy still, is using something called the ANITA telescope. ANITA is actually on a balloon, and it kind of goes in circular uh, flight path around Antarctica. And the idea is a neutrino with a ton of energy might come along, kind of skim the Earth. So just uh, go through part of the Antarctic ice, undergo uh, an interaction in that ice, and then a radio signal penetrates out of the ice hitting the ANITA telescope, and they report that. So ANITA is a great experiment. It was supposed to measure, well, ideally, we're going to try to measure how many neutrinos there were at different energies, at really, really high energies, something had never been done before. And then in two of their flights, they see events that they frankly shouldn't have been able to see. They're events that don't make much sense. They don't make much sense because they don't just skim the Earth. They come from, you know, all the way through the middle of the Earth, most more or less. And at the kind of energies we're talking about, the Earth should just be opaque to neutrinos. Neutrinos should get absorbed 99.9 something percent of the time that they try to go through the Earth. And yet these two events look like neutrinos that went straight through the Earth or more or less straight through the Earth. So what's going on? Well, the most likely answer, if we're being honest, at least in my opinion, is that there's something complicated going on in the ice and it's, you know, we don't understand the modeling the ice well enough. And it's some mundane but complicated explanation that's going to one day we'll understand and we'll be able to put all this to rest. I see. Oh, sorry. Yeah, by all means. Oh, you can you can finish your, your thought, Dan, please. Yeah. So that's the mundane and sadly likely explanation. But there's also a far less mundane possibility that that these events are real and we're measuring them correctly, but they aren't neutrinos. There's some other sort of particle that interacts even less than neutrinos do, and they're passing straight through the Earth and are interacting with the ice in a way that produces these Anita events. If that's true, then we've, you know, Anita's really discovered some entirely new form of matter and energy, um, and we don't, 
you know, know exactly what that would be like. Maybe it has something to do with the dark matter, for example. Maybe dark matter particles are decaying to make these exotic forms of matter. Um, but anyway, if, if that were true, it'd be enormously important. So, yeah, it's gotten a lot of interest. Right. Now, well, I don't think we actually mentioned this. Can you briefly describe what a neutrino is and, and why it's so important? Good. So, of all of the particles that we know about, like in, in the sense that we see them in particle accelerators and measure their properties and all that stuff, the neutrinos are the most feebly interacting. Um, so picture something that's kind of like an electron, but way, way, way less heavy. Okay. And, you know, more than say a million times less heavy and you take away its electric charge. So this thing does not feel any of the electromagnetic force or effects. It doesn't experience what we call the strong nuclear force, the thing that acts on quarks and gluons. So the only force besides gravity that affects neutrinos is what we call the weak nuclear force. And this is so feeble, like I said before, neutrinos can go straight through the Earth, you know, unless they're exceedingly high energy without really interacting most of the time. So these are ghost-like particles for all intents and purposes. I see. Now, um, the... So you have this, you have, I have millions of neutrinos bombarding me right now, right? Every second of every day. Right. And they're coming from all sorts of different sources in the, the sky. And yeah, they come from the sun. They come from interactions in the atmosphere. They come from supernovae throughout the cosmos, all those things. I see. And now as, as they travel through my body, and this is sort of the, the, the premise behind Ice Cube, I believe, um, which by the way, I interviewed Francis Halsen and it was one of the worst interviews I've ever done. He was the, the first, like the first person I've had on the show who I didn't like know personally. And it was a terrible interview. I'm going to have to have him back on now that I'm marginally better at this than I was then. But man, if you that... talk to him again, ask him about race car driving. All right. Is he a race car driver? He was. Oh, look, I need, this is what I need. I need to reach out to me. He's probably like, Hey, uh, Go go away! You 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 were terrible last time. Maybe I actually wasn't that bad. I'm gonna have to re-listen to it, but I'm like embarrassed to do that. Uh, I don't want to. I think I'm not going to. It's shameful. Um, anyhow, so there's there's billions of neutrinos bombarding uh, the Earth every second, and as they travel through my body, there is a tiny chance that they can interact with my body, right? Very 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 small, but yes. And and what would happen? Chance. What would happen if 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 that actually did happen, like what if say the neutrino was traveling through me and, and interacted with a, an atom in the bone of my foot or something? Well, it depends how much energy that neutrino has. Most of the neutrinos around um, don't have all that much energy. Right. So like not much would happen. It would be very similar to if any other kind of particle just hit into your body, mm -hmm. right? It, it would, you would never notice it or anything like that. Um, in like, I don't know, like you could imagine that neutrino might just simply recoil off of one of the atoms in your body, just like departing, a, de uh, right. Im imparting a little bit of momentum or mm -hmm. something. It's also possible that that neutrino could scatter off an, something in your body and be transformed into an electron or something. And that electron might go on to bounce around a little bit. I see. Not, nothing dramatic. Right. And so, so the premise, I'm just a bag of water, right? Essentially. Uh, and, and so the premise behind Ice Cube is you build a big enough pool of water and eventually you're going, to, even though it's a tiny chance, it's statistically possible that you will have an interaction. So you build a big enough vat of water and you increase your odds and you can 
eventually detect neutrinos interacting with the ice. That's the premise, right? That's exactly right. Okay. Now, this is what I, I don't didn't quite understand about these these Anita events. And I, I think you kind of answered it when you said that low-energy neutrinos can just go through my body. The odds of them interacting are, are incredibly, incredibly small, right? Now, a high-energy neutrino, does that have a better chance of interacting with my body? Yeah, so the the quantity at stake here is something called the cross-section. Right. Which tells you, like, you can think of it as, like, how effectively large the particle is. And low-energy neutrinos have small cross-sections, which means that the odds that they hit anything is really small. Mm-hmm. And as you crank up their energy, that cross-section gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it turns out that if a neutrino is less than... Uh, it has an energy less than about 100 tera electron volts, which is, you know, com- for comparison, a Large Hadron Collider is 13 tera electron volts. So, you know, 10 times or so more energetic than the Large Hadron Collider. Those neutrinos will most of the time go straight through the Earth without interacting at all. And if, if you're more than that, if you're significantly more than 100 tera electron volts, then those neutrinos will more often than not scatter at least once as they try to go through the Earth. I see. Now, th- this is what I, I always trip me up about these Anita anomalous events. So we discover these apparent neutrino detections. You know, you say it, it could be something mundane. And we'll talk about that because this is a super interesting point in the history of science is experiments that that see there's a, there's an interesting interplay. Some of them seem mundane and they're incredibly important. Think the CMB mm-hmm. and some of them uh, seem important and they're incredibly mundane, like a lot of LIGO false detections tend to be. Um, anyway, I, I always wonder this when I talk of, or listen to people talk about the Anita events is, do you know the statistics on this? So there's a very small chance that a high energy neutrino goes through the earth, scatters the ice, and and we detect it with Anita. A very small chance that that happens with a high energy neutrino, right? But it's, as you mentioned, it's non-zero. So is it not possible that in a flood of billions of high-energy neutrinos, this does happen? It does happen once, twice? So we can we, we can say that, well, we know there aren't more than a certain number of very high-energy neutrinos because mm-hmm. Anita doesn't see any events coming from or skimming directions. Right. So we can like kind of saturate that bound. Mm-hmm. And then we can ask, what are the odds that neutrinos at that rate would produce two events like this? going straight through the earth or nearly straight through the earth. And I don't remember what the the likelihood is, but when there was one event, it was, you know, very unlikely, Mm -hmm. but then you square that probability. Right. And it goes from being very unlikely to so unlikely that I'm not even willing to think about it. (laughs) Right. Fair enough. Yeah. And, and uh, now I, I really want to talk, I want to come back to this idea of it being mundane or maybe not mundane. Um, but, 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 you know what, Let, let's actually just focus on that for now, because this is kind of important. Um, there are a lot of experiments in history where we think we've detected something really cool, and it turns out to be super mundane, right? Um, and, and you kind of put your money on that in regards to Anita, right? I mean, I think that's where the, I mean, if you're really giving me 50-50 odds, uh, you know, in terms of like betting probability mm-hmm. or something, yeah, I put my money on the mundane here. I think that's the more likely outcome. Or you know resolution, but um, I I wrote a paper on these events once. Right. And I thought it was worth investing my time to do that because if there's a one or two or three percent chance 
that these events are really coming from new kinds of physics, totally worth my time. So just because I think the mundane explanation is more likely than the exciting one doesn't mean the prospects of that exciting one don't make it totally worth thinking about in detail. Right. I, that's kind of the story of science, right? Yeah. That's kind of the story of yeah. all science boiled down. Um, so what is the more exciting exciting aspect of this that, that you consider in regards to dark matter? I mean, if, if these events are real and we've measured them correctly – that means there's some sort of exotic form of, of, of matter, energy, whatever, that's penetrating through the earth and make these events. Uh, maybe it's 10 or 100 or 1,000 times less interacting than even neutrinos. So, A, you've discovered a new form of energy. That's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. And then, B, you have to make them somehow. And, frankly, the best way anyone's thought of so far as to how to make them is to have very, very heavy particles of dark matter out there that are occasionally decaying to produce these exotics, you know, forms of matter and energy that Anita see. I see. So, so, you know, it could be something mundane, but it could also be a first principles sort of dark matter detection. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, if, if when the dust settles, we're really sure these events are real and maybe we go and measure this sort of thing in a variety of other ways or something and get a more complete picture and we recognize that this is a, the real discovery that we're kind of hoping it might be, then, yeah, not only have we discovered something about what dark matter is, but we've discovered this other form of matter that is produced in the dark matter decays. Now, how will this, how could this, I'll say, sort of change the, the standard model? Because does the, I'm not a particle physicist by any means, um, does the standard model currently have anything to account for, for dark matter other than a, uh, what I often hear referred to as WIMPs, and other than knowing the meaning of the acronym, I know very little about what that means. Yeah, so the standard model does not have a candidate for dark matter that, that is, at this point in time anyway, uh, uh, you know, a, a viable candidate. Mm -hmm. So the, let me just walk through the standard model. So standard model consists of six kinds of quarks. These things don't make good dark matter candidates because they have electric charge and they feel the strong force. Like They're just the, exactly what you don't want in dark matter candidates. Right. Then there are uh, six leptons. Three of them are charged, the electron, muon, and tau. So charged particles interact with light. They, that's not dark matter. And then there are the three neutrinos. For a while, people thought that maybe neutrinos could be the dark matter, but it turns out uh, they're too light and too fast moving to generate the kind of large-scale structure we see in our universe. Um, they're also too, too – uh, they're not heavy enough to make up enough mass. Right. So all those things together, neutrinos are no longer a viable possibility. And then there are like the force carrying particles, uh, the bosons. So these are the photon, the gluon, the W boson, the Z boson, and most recently discovered the Higgs boson. None of these make a good dark matter candidate at all. So the standard model tells us a pretty complete picture of all the stuff we see in accelerator environments or in laboratory environments, but it does not solve the dark matter problem. So we know the standard model must be incomplete. There have to be other particles out there that we don't know about yet that solve that and other sorts of outstanding problems. The the standard model has been incredibly successful, right? Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, the the kind of precision that we've tested the the standard model at is is staggering. It, mm -hmm. it, it could be argued that it's the most successful theory in the history of science. What predictions are left in the standard model? This is a this is an interesting thing for me in science. Is I feel 
that a lot of the prevailing theories in science are in an, in essence, and I, I don't mean this in the wrong way, and I hope you don't take it the wrong way, are running out of predictions, if that makes any sense. In other well, what words... What do you mean? Well, yeah, explain what you mean so, by that. So what I mean by that is you could imagine something like the detection of the CMB. You can imagine something like the detection of gravitational waves. A lot of these detections relied on the concept of, of sort of a, a first principles prediction. In other words, we predict that we will be able to detect gravitational waves. Therefore, we build a detector and detect it. Okay. It did not work the other way around. So this is actually true for the Higgs boson too. The Higgs boson was predicted to have existed, right? We build the LHC. We smash particles together. We detect it. Do you feel though that a lot of theories are now like, for example, the LHC, um, I, again, I'm not a particle physicist, so correct me if I'm wrong here. But do you feel like it's, it's almost running out of things to find that were previously predicted? In other words. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Not you don't at all. think so. Okay. Not at all. So let's, let's, you're, you're bringing up LIGO before and gravitational waves. So, mm -hmm. um, before the version of LIGO that succeeded in detecting gravitational waves, there was a less advanced earlier version of LIGO and it operated and it sure. didn't see anything. Yep. Okay. And we think of LIGO as a success and whatever, but, yeah. you know, after several iterations of experiments, we started to see something. Yes. And, and we didn't know how sensitive that experiment would have to be before we started to see it. We had some estimates and ranges and yep. stuff. Uh huh. But similarly, like, well, we don't know how many collisions we have to observe at the, at the Large Hadron Collider before we're going to find new physics. We right. don't know how much energy those collisions have to have. Um, but every time a new limit comes out mm -hmm. or every time an analysis happens with a little more sensitivity, there's a chance of discovery or at least, uh, or at least, uh, proceeding along the road to discovery. Um, there are going to be big upgrades to Large Hadron Collider. Mm -hmm. Um, there are some going on now and in the, down the road a little bit more. There's going to be this high luminosity, um, upgrade, which just means you're going to have way, way, way more collisions to study. Um, maybe down the road, we'll even increase the energy of these collisions. It's yeah. hard to say. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what I'm really hoping for. So, um, there's a ton of stuff to look for at the Large Hadron Collider. And just like we didn't know when LIGO was going to see gravitational waves, we don't know how heavy these particles are or how hard they'll be to detect. Um, but I'm pretty optimistic that there isn't just some desert where there are no new kinds of physics to observe in particle colliders from where we've studied up to some very, very high scale. I think there are really good reasons to think that these particles exist and aren't prohibitively out of reach. Right. Okay, maybe this is my ignorance in, in part. Well, obviously, I'm ignorant in particle physics. I'm, again, not a particle physicist. Um, but the the way I look at it, and again, I'm not like throwing shade at particle physicists. I, I love the work that particle physicists do. I, was, I wanted to be a particle physicist um, at one time in my life. Uh, but, but in essence, so going back to the LIGO analogy, we knew, although we didn't know the, the, the sort of strain that the gravitational wave was going to have per se, uh, we didn't know it exactly. We knew we were looking for gravitational waves and maybe my brain is playing a little name game in, in a weird way where I'm looking at the LHC and, and, um, I'm saying, well, we get to larger and larger energies. What, what is it that, that the LHC expects to find? I guess that's the question I'm trying to ask, right? Like, is there a, a prediction like this particle 
should exist at these energies, and thus we should be able to smash protons together and 0.0001% of the time at these energies, we should detect particle X with these properties. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And what I would say is that if you ask different theorists working in particle physics, they'll all give you different ideas about what they hope the Large Hadron Collider will one day discover. Right. And uh, we don't know that any of those things exist. We have various reasons to, to know that some new kinds of particles must exist. Mm-hmm. But until, I mean, if, if we knew they existed already, what would be the point of building the machine? Exactly. Right? You know, mm-hmm. discovery d- doesn't happen when, when you're guaranteed. If you're guaranteed to see it, then it's not a discovery. Right. I agree with you. I, I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that lack of predictions are a bad thing. Um, but I, it's, it's like an interesting, uh, change in, in science for me, I think, where maybe this isn't true, but it seems that our discoveries are, are prevailing as of late more so than predictions. You can think of this well, in the realm well, of fast radio bursts. You can think of this in the realm of, uh, gamma ray bursts. The many, 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 many objects. And so maybe let's it's different. Let's go through from, the history yeah. of particle physics though, sure. right? So, um, like, uh, the discovery of the neutrino mm-hmm. was totally unanticipated. They saw right. it in the process of beta decay. Mm-hmm. Um, like they noticed that, uh, you know, there seemed to be some energy being carried away by something they couldn't detect. And they kind of forced the neutrino into their theory. They, they weren't yeah. expecting it. They weren't looking for it. Right. Similarly, uh, sometime later in cosmic rays, uh, particle physicists started to notice particles we now call muons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, like, I think there was a famous quote around that time, uh, which was like, who ordered that? Like, yeah. it just, it didn't <laughs> fit into anyone's right. neat ideas about how the nature was supposed to be. Later, um, you know, there were particles called strange particles that were being discovered in, in early particle accelerators. Um, these are, are now the mesons and hadrons that, uh, contain a strange quark, but we didn't know that at the time. Again, I don't think anyone anticipated anything like that. Right. And and only later did, was there this era where particle physicists were pretty good at predicting in advance what they were going to see. You know, when they discovered the W and Z bosons in the, uh, early eighties, we were pretty sure those had to exist. Uh, we wanted to study their properties, but it would have been a pretty big shocker if they didn't exist. And I would say the same thing about the Higgs boson. Like I, I, I think I, I, before the Higgs was discovered, I said it was 99% likely mm-hmm. that the Higgs was a real thing and the LAC would discover it. Right. Um, you know, so it, I think the history of particle physics is a mixture of kind of, uh, you know, more blind fishing expeditions yeah. in lakes with lots of fish or, and, and then very precise, uh, you know, missions to find the thing they know or pretty pretty sure they know exists yeah and the reason i ask is is almost sort of a, a devil's advocate reason um and it's it's it has to do with the scientific method and i think sometimes we look at the scientific method as a really clean process well i don't think scientists do no, i think it's taught no better yeah i think it's taught as a really clean process um but but scientists know it's anything but a, a really clean process and you don't always make a prediction and then 
you know, test your hypothesis and make your discovery. A lot of times you, you make your discovery first. And this is a, a really, well, I should say you make your discovery before you understand what you've discovered, um, is what I mean to say. And I think that this is a really important topic today because there are a lot of unanswered questions in physics and there are billions of dollars currently being spent on trying to address these unanswered questions in physics. And for many, many years, some of them are coming up empty, right? And we talked about this on the the last show we did together, is the concept of paradigm shifts, is the concept that, uh, you know, we might be looking for something for a very, very, very long time, not realizing that we do not have the means to find it, or we are not looking correctly. Um, do you do you think that 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 sort of thing is is happening widely in in physics today? Do you think we're looking to solve questions that are posed wrong, if you will? So we're doing a lot of different things in physics or science mm-hmm. at, at the same time. So many different things that I'm sure that what you're describing is happening in some part of that program. Sure. The program is too diverse and has too many mm-hmm. different things going on. Yeah. And I'm I, sure that someone's looking for something they're yeah. never going to find. And I should say, thinking. that's not a bad thing. I'm not right. saying like the NSF should be like, hey, stop funding dark matter projects or something. You know, right. I don't think that's the case. That's not what I'm trying to get at. Um, but continue, please. I think the the best strategy, the optimal strategy in science probably defined is a mixture of like high risk, high reward endeavors mm-hmm. in more like bread and butter measurements. Right. So like, I'm really glad that, um, you know, there's a bunch of people at the large Hadron Collider whose job it is just to measure the detailed characteristics of the standard model to another significant digit. Right. Like, that's valuable. Mm-hmm. That will help us in a lot of ways going forward. But um, let's just say if I were a grad student looking for a project to work on, I wouldn't pick that one because it would be pretty dull. I mean, for my personality, it wouldn't work. On the other hand, like there are some people like doing kind of cheapish experiments, fly by night sort of things Mm -hmm. where like if we're being honest, they're probably not going to discover anything new, but there's some small chance that they will. And they're looking somewhere that's pretty easy to look and pretty exciting if it were to be, you know, if, if they were to discover something. And, like, those sorts of high-risk, low-cost um, experiments make sense as well. And then there are things in between where, like, uh, underground dark matter detectors, I think we have pretty good reason to motivate those searches. We, we think that if we can make our experiments a thousand times more sensitive or something – there's a non-negligible chance we'll start seeing dark matter particles. That's like a kind of middle ground. It's certainly not like dull, mundane bread, bread and, bread and butter physics, mm-hmm. but it's also not like super high risk, super low probability right. discovery. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere in between. So I think a, a good uh, you know array of all the way from high risk to low risk and variety of costs, variety of uh, you know et cetera, is is a good good strategy. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. And, and, um, you know, to bring the, the conversation full circle, the reason I brought up the, the entire idea of, of making predictions is that one of the, the things that allowed LIGO to get the funding it got, which is the most, you know, expensive project in the history of the NSF, is that it, it, it did have sort of a prediction. It said, if we can build a 
detector, you know, with arms that are so long. We know that there's a binary out there that's orbiting around one another at such and such distance. Probabilistically, that probably is out there. Uh, with two neutron stars with some mass. And it should produce a gravitational wave with some strain amplitude. And we should be able to detect it in our detector. And it, and I feel that a lot of times that is looked at as the true scientific method, that sort of prediction. And that is the sort of prediction that ends up getting you the money because you're able to put numbers. You're not, you're not, you know, open, open ended sort of question that we just want to see what we find. Um, I don't think that pitch would have gotten LIGO funded. I don't think saying we want to see what we find would have gotten LIGO funded. And, and, my whole point in bringing this up to you, Dan, is that I actually think that that is the wrong way to do funding, and I have literally no idea how to fix it. Because you, well, you what? Sorry. So the the biggest cost experiments almost always, before they're funded, make a pitch, which is here's the thing that we're essentially guaranteed to succeed at, mm-hmm. and here are a bunch of more wild things that we'll be able to test. Right. And that combination was true for LIGO. It's true for the Large Hadron Collider. Mm-hmm. In the yeah. case of Large Hadron Collider, like we're almost certain we'll be able to discover something that's we call the Higgs boson. Yep. And we'll be able to test this list of a thousand different theories that people are excited about. Um, so like in a sense, I agree with you that the scientific method as it's taught in, you know, high school or something says you have an idea, you have a hypothesis, you build something and you go and test it and you make observations and you refine your hypothesis, whatever. And there's also a, a kind of just like being open-minded and fishing for mm-hmm. new discoveries. And yeah. every time we build a telescope that's 10 times as powerful as its predecessor, we discover something new. Yeah. Without exception. Mm-hmm. Every single time. Oh, yeah. And and you don't have you, oftentimes it's stuff you weren't looking for. You didn't know to look for it. It never occurred to you right. that that thing could exist. So I, I think there's a, a, an argument made for really big projects that have to have something solid that you're trying to do while at the same time uh, open the sky or whatever their medium is to a variety of other possibilities. Yeah, um, I agree with you. And I, I struggle to come up with a reasonable model that could actually work in the, in the regime of giving people money. Um, because... You know, you don't want to fund like outright crazy ideas, ideas that aren't really based in, in scientific, you know, scientific pursuits. But you do want to start to fund like we're at a point now where, where I do think that there's a lot of of uh, there would be a lot of benefit in funding alternative ideas to a lot of the biggest problems in physics, because we are at a, an interesting um, an interesting point where we have a lot of open problems. And our, our conventional wisdom is, is sort of failing us. And, and I, I don't know. And I, I sort of pose this question to you in email, but I'll lay it out for people and then, and then we can talk about it. There's this everyone, every scientist, Dan, I'm sure you've had this, this project. I'm sure you could think of this project, a project where you, you had a good idea or maybe not a good idea. You had an idea and you had an idea of how to go about showing X or Y is true. You had a good idea about how to, uh, you know, find some something, publish some paper, uh, explore some idea. And you go out and you try to do it and it's not working. And you say, okay, well, maybe my code is wrong or maybe my, uh, maybe, you know, this is wrong or that is wrong. You start tinkering and you start changing everything that has to do with your idea. 
And eventually you get to a point after a year or two go by where you've tinkered enough to the point where you've essentially tinkered everything. You've changed everything. You've tried to modify everything. You've tried to address every problem you can think of. And your progress begins to exponentially slow down. And it's possible that the reason the progress is slowed down is because your your original question was not well posed. And in fact, the thing you're searching for and trying to find is, is absolutely completely wrong. Um, it's also, though, possible that the more and more stuff you discover, the harder and harder it gets to discover the next thing. Uh, I, I imagine you're more of a historian of science than I am. But was there sort of buildups where like, oh man, all these open questions, so many open questions for decades, and then boom, paradigm shift, we've solved many of the open questions, time goes on, and then we 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 repeat the cycle. Has that been something that's happened? Yeah, I mean, I can think of a couple right off the top of my head. I mean, certainly 1905 with mm-hmm. the uh, introduction of special relativity and the first ideas of quantum physics was a sort of paradigm shift that, you know, led to resolutions of several long-standing problems that couldn't be addressed by classical physics. And if, you know, if you were a physicist in 1900 thinking about the speed of light, because you didn't have anything like relativity to consider, you were thinking about like, well, maybe the speed of light's the same in all frames of reference or seems to be because we're dragging the ether along with the earth as it moves mm-hmm. or other sorts of things. And, and you might build more and more elaborate models of ether dragging and whatever. And you're right. That will never get you somewhere that makes sense. Right. And, and uh, you know, but I'm, I also think it's probably was a smart or wise decision at the time for some people to be writing papers on ether dragging in 1900. That seemed like a good investment of time, even though we, we know in hindsight it wasn't. Yeah. Um, and in like, I don't know if I were thinking about the photoelectric effect experiment in, you know, 1904, before Einstein comes out with his quantum interpretation, I would not, you know, I would, I'm sure I would have had some much more mundane version of of explaining those things that didn't involve the existence of quanta of of light photons, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that was a much more radical interpretation of that experiment than I think most people would come up with at, at the time if they were thinking about it. So, I mean, paradigm shifts happen rarely mm-hmm. in, in, in the, the capital P paradigm shift sort of way. Yeah. Um, and when they do, no one sees them coming. Mm-hmm. And uh, suddenly a bunch of stuff that couldn't be explained for a really long time just kind of falls neatly in place, or at least at least it does over some time. Yeah. So so you know, again, I'm asking you to bet on a lot of stuff today. If you had to to put your money in in you know on one of the odds, do you think we have discovered so much? We're up against an exponential wall here, and it's going to take ever longer to discover the next thing and narrow down our theories to the next significant digit, if you will. Or do you think that a paradigm shift is due? To, to happen. I mean, do is, is not quite the word because it's not like it happens on some, some time scale. Um, but do, do you think that is going to be the necessary catalyst to solve many of these major problems in physics? I mean, like the truth of the history of science is you do not find examples of paradigm shifts that are preceded by periods where people kind of see a paradigm shift coming. Right. So sure. if I were to tell you, yeah, all the signs are there, there's a paradigm shift coming, you should immediately you know, not believe anything I have to say because <laughs> I have no right to know that. Sure, exactly. Um, but 
that being said, I'm going to proceed and try to do something like that anyway. Um, so there are a bunch of puzzles in cosmology in particular, but also particle physics that we've been up against for a long time yeah. without resolution. Can we, and, can we pause yeah. Dan and, and talk about some of these ideas as we, or maybe you plan to, but can we talk yeah, about yeah. some of these things as we go along? Yeah. Let me give you like a lightning list of outstanding big questions sure. in, in, in physics, Please. at least the ones I care about. Um, so everything we know about the laws of physics say that the early universe should have had the same amount of matter and antimatter. Mm -hmm. And because matter and antimatter can only be created or destroyed together with each other, the early universe should have ended with all the matter and antimatter destroying each other. If, 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 if the laws of physics were the way we think they are, which means that our universe shouldn't contain any matter in it. Obviously, you know, here we are with a lot of matter. I'm sitting around a desk made of matter on a planet made of matter. My body's made of matter. Mm -hmm. This theory is wrong, but we don't know how or why. And all of our efforts to solve it have not really gotten us very far. So right. question that's puzzle one puzzle two. We've already talked about the dark matter problem. We've spent decades now looking for dark matter particles. Um, you know, it's possible we're seeing evidence of dark matter in the gamma rays from the galactic center. I won't get into that anymore, but let's say that's a controversial point. And I, it's, it is not controversial to say that we, it's still an open question what the dark matter is. Mm -hmm. Third, third puzzle is that of dark energy. Our universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. And we call the stuff that we think drives that the dark energy. If dark energy exists, what that really means is that the vacuum of space itself contains the fixed density of energy, mm -hmm. which is pretty wild. And we don't know why it would be there or if it if, if and if we thought that there would be dark energy we would expect it to be in a wildly different quantity so why dark energy exists and why it exists in the quantity it does is a super open question with we have really no good ideas for and then there's a the whole uh theory of cosmic inflation so basically we look at the flatness and uniformity of our universe and it doesn't make sense in the big bang picture so to like patch that up back in the eighties, physicists proposed that shortly after the big bang, the universe might've expanded in kind of a burst with something we call inflation, mm -hmm. leaving the universe bigger by a factor of 10 to the 75 and only 10 to the minus 32 seconds. And that's great. And it's predictions have panned out really, really well. So most cosmologists today think inflation really happened, but we don't know how or why or how it ended, what drove it. All those things are just totally open questions. And then turning more towards the particle physics side, there's something called the hierarchy problem. You can formulate this in a couple of different ways. One is why is the strength of the weak force so different from the strength of gravity? Um, another way of putting it is why aren't the masses of the Higgs, W, and Z bosons uh, much, much, much heavier. Why aren't they up at the Planck mass instead of way, you know, much, much lower mass where we find these particles at? Everything we think we know about how quantum field theory works says they should be, and yet they aren't. Um, people have, you know, come up with all sorts of theories to explain this, but let's say, you know, it's fair to say that none of those theories have panned out empirically yet. And I guess I could go on and on. Um, there's the, I'll get mentioned one more, which is our theory of general relativity, which describes space and time and all that stuff, gravity. That theory does not seem to be compatible with quantum physics. 
And there has to be a theory of quantum gravity. Somehow these theories play well together with each other. Um, but we haven't gotten very close to figuring out how to build such a theory. I mean, people talk about string theory and stuff, and maybe that's the right answer. But let's just say that, uh, you know, we're, it's, it's not convincing yet. Mm-hmm. That's really the right answer. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, th- this is so interesting to me because science is one of the weird fields where the more problems you have, the healthier you are, in a sense. Like, it's really good that we have all of that laundry list of issues, right? I mean, for the sake of science, it's good. For the sake of pursuing science, for the sake of doing fundamental science, for the sake of advancement, it's good that we have problems to solve. Um, I remember when I was a, in, in high school reading, like, Carl Sagan books, uh, reading Stephen Hawking books and things of the like, I, I was convinced at a certain stage that, like, this field was not fruitful to go into because we would solve all the problems, there would be no problems to solve. We'd be like, I'd be out of a job. You know, well, we solve the problems, pack up, you know, close your desk up, shut your office lights off. We're done here. Let's go get a different job. And and I don't say that as a joke. I mean, I literally thought that we would get to that point. Um, but now I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking we're going to have an infinite number of problems. Yeah, I, I wonder, like, I mean, is, is uh, the structure of the universe like an onion you peel back a Mm -hmm. a layer and there's another one and there's another one and if it is to carry that analogy further is there a center of the onion you ever get to the innermost layer right i don't know i don't know what the answer to that is but even if you did get to the centermost layer you wouldn't know exactly yes um you would you'd always be wondering like will my theory break down under some other new condition tomorrow and, uh, I mean, it might not be a super exciting time to study science if you had a perfect theory of everything, but people would still pursue it, I think. Um, they'd continue to test that theory, or, or maybe they would for a while and eventually just concede that it seems to be the right theory and stop. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But this this concept of, like, um, sort of the, the philosophy of science in this regard is, is super, super interesting to me. Did, did, was that... Was there ever a point in your career where you were kind of disheartened? So when you when, when did you get into cosmology? When did you decide, like, cosmology is the thing I want to pursue? Um, this is the thing I want to do with my career, for a career? I mean, when I was, like, a junior and senior in college, I learned a smattering of things about cosmology, and I thought they were awfully cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some reason, I was more pulled towards the particle physics end. And I didn't know that these two things had anything to do with each other. So I, I'm, I'm, I call myself a particle cosmologist now. Right. So I'm kind of do both. And mm-hmm. I didn't know that was a thing at that point. When I showed up at the University of Wisconsin for graduate school, um, like I had all these particle physics ideas, but I came across Francis Halzen, who was like, why don't you do neutrino astronomy? And like, well, okay, that's got particles in it. That sounds pretty good. I don't know about this astronomy part. Mm-hmm. But, you know, next thing you know, I'm writing papers about neutrino astronomy, and that worked out really well for me. Um, and then slowly I migrated towards, uh, you know, dark matter-related stuff, which was a playground of ideas to explore. And, like, these days, I think as much about early universe cosmology as anything else, but I've just kind of migrated in that direction over time. When you were uh, – did you have, like, thoughts when you were not in in college yet about – like cosmological cosmological thoughts, if you will. Like no, I mean no, I, I didn't know about any of that stuff. Right. Um, I mean, if I had ever encountered them, I would have like lapped it up. But 
but no, I mean, I grew up in this small town in Minnesota. Um, I don't recall ever hearing anyone talk about anything like that. Yeah. But I mean, did you, did, you, time. did you ever even think about it? Like, well, you know, look at the night sky. You're in Minnesota. Presumably the night sky is beautiful. Uh, it is in Pennsylvania. Similar remoteness, maybe. Um, you, you know, the there's stars. It's beautiful. There's a lot going on. You look up. You you think like, man, what's the what was the beginning of the universe like? Had, had that ever was that ever a thought in your in your brain? I mean, I'm sure something like that must have been, but I don't recall. Yeah. Ever thinking that question until years later. It just, you know, if, if you're in an environment where you're not conditioned to think big thoughts, mm-hmm. you're just very unlikely to do that. Um, there's a reason why there are certain places in history of, of civilization where a flurry of new ideas come out. It's because you get this critical mass where people interact with each other. Um, if you took, you know, Plato and dumped him into, you know, my hometown in Minnesota, um, without anyone to talk to about these ideas, like he would have been a much less interesting guy. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think you need, you need to be surrounded by a community of people to kind of get those, you know, creative juices flowing. Yeah. I, I could not agree more. I, I agree with you a thousand percent. That's why you see, you know, certain regions of the United States that are just kind of, um, kind of prisons for young people in that regard. Uh, you don't see a lot of scientists coming out of Appalachia, is in essence. Uh, yeah, or, not many. Or no. regions like that. Um, and it's just, it's you know, it's not because there's not scientists there. There's a lot of scientists there. Uh, they just don't know that they want to pursue science. It's not in their face. So they, they don't know. Um, but no, that, that's, that's super interesting because I'm in a, a similar boat. So, like, if someone took you out of the, the lab tomorrow and said, Dan, you're not doing particle cosmology anymore. You're going to come over here and, and like make a, a, some epidemiology model. Would you like that? Would that be something interesting? Or would you be like, nah, I'm going to go make music or something instead? Oh, epidemiology sounds pretty interesting. But like, I mean, I, I mean, I love making music. That's not, mm-hmm. a, there's no doubt about that. But, um, where I, I think that I could be, an academic in almost any department yeah. and be pretty entertained. Um, that, yeah. Especially the least practical ones. Um, I don't think I would be a very good engineer or something. Um, mm-hmm. Cause those just aren't the ideas that get me, you know, raring to go. Um, but I could definitely be happy in an alternative universe where I'm a philosophy professor or I'm a historian or, you know, things like this. I, I, I could definitely enjoy myself in that role. See, th- this is the this is exactly me. So I have interviewed a lot of people on here. And um, I, I've come to the conclusion that scientists are, in essence, one of two people. They are people who are pursuing a big question that was in, sort of instilled in them sometime in their life. And they really want to answer that big question. They're really... So, for example, Brian Keating... He's a cosmologist through and through. He has big questions about cosmology that he wants to answer. But there are other scientists who, realistically, it doesn't matter what they're doing. They are really happy solving scientific problems. So answering questions, in essence. They, they find a thrill in answering questions. Um, and you seem to fall into that category. I fall into that category. I could do anything. I used to think I was married to a problem and that I really like was interested in particular problems. But I've come to find that I like solving any problem as long as I'm with a group of people that I like talking to. 
um, take that away from me, and then all of a sudden, I don't want to solve the problem at all. Um, I do. I do find that some problems seem intrinsically more interesting than others. Sure, absolutely. Um, but uh, when the the fields outside of physics that I have bothered to learn a lot about invariably have some really in- interesting problems in them. So um, I, 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 I I suspect there are very few like uniformly dull fields out there. Um, but, uh, you know, if I went into philosophy, I bet I would find most of those problems not very interesting and a few of them very interesting would be my guess. Right. Yeah. I, I think that, that I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat now. I, I want to switch gears for a minute and, and head back on something that I don't think I ever got your prediction for, because we sort of interrupted it by talking about the biggest questions in, in science. The, the question was about paradigm shifts and where mm. you, where you'd have, where you'd want to put your money on that one. Do you remember the question? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I kind of punted by saying you shouldn't trust anyone who tells you there's a paradigm shift on the way. Sure. Like that, we're just not, that's not how paradigm shifts work. But I look at all these puzzles that we've been struggling with for decades and not making substantive prog- progress on, and it starts to look like being a physicist in 1904. You know, Mm -hmm. you know, there are all these various puzzles floating around. We've taken our our tools in our toolbox. We've hammered on it with our Newtonian physics hammer. We've, uh, uh, you know, done everything we can and not really chipped away at it very much. And then 1905 happens. Yeah. Right. We find out we were doing it all wrong. And maybe 2020 or 2021 or 2030 or 2045 is going to be the 1905 for us. I don't know. Um, but, it, you know, part of me thinks it's starting to look that way. Yeah. Um, have you, do you, do you ever see those books that are like, um, you know, here's 10 things rich people do, or, you know, 10 things that billionaires do, so, some books like that. Uh, and they're supposed to motivate you to, I don't know, wake up at 6 a.m. and, and, you know, oh. do things um, like that. I guess I'm aware those things exist. Yeah. I, I, so I'm not a self help guy. Sure. Me either. But, but my question is, um, do you think that, like, if you studied the history really, really well, what you have, um, but do you think if you study the history even better, you could come up with like a, here's some things to expect before a paradigm shift. And, and do you think that there's like, do you think a paradigm shift is, 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 uh, God, I hate, I don't want to use the word like magical or spontaneous. Or, I, I'm on the fence about whether or not I believe a paradigm shift is spontaneous or whether or not there was a set of conditions that allowed someone like Einstein to come up with his, his thoughts about the world. And those could have been conditions with where he lived. They could have been genetic conditions. He could have just been an absolute genius and been looking at the world differently than everyone else. It could have been that he wasn't indoctrinated into a certain way of thinking. I don't know what it was. It could have been a, a, you know, a bunch of things. But do you think that if you study these paradigm shifts enough in the history of, of the universe, you would come up with like, oh, wait, here might be a great way to educate kids on how to think in such a way that we can come up with revolutionary new ideas. And not all of them is going to be a paradigm shift, but here's a good way to think. And do you think that the current sort of education system doesn't produce that quality? And again, I that's a pretty pretty tough question to ask Dan Hooper, but just for a conversation. Yeah, yeah. So so first of all, I think like if Albert Einstein had never been born, the same paradigm shift would have happened. Yeah. Now 
I, I, you know, I, I reject the great man theory of history and, you know, 99% of occurrences. I, I tend to think, you know, things happen because of like the global situation. And if you took Albert Einstein out of the picture, you know, relativity would have been discovered. We might call it something different and it might have been discovered a handful of years later or something. Sure. And quantum physics would have been discovered. It might have been formulated through a different series of events and it might have taken a little bit longer to get off the ground. But we would have gotten there. Like there were enough other smart, creative people um, just, you know, thinking about the same sort of questions that would have gotten there. I, I don't think anyone in the history of science is irreplaceable. Right. That being said, I do think, you know, you can educate people differently or, or, or inculcate different ideas about thinking and stuff differently that make it likely your your society will produce more people who are, you know, more creative or more deep thinkers or, you know, more independent thinkers. Like, sure. Uh, and I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an edu educational uh, scholar. So I don't really know what those techniques should be or are. But I'm totally bought into the idea that the way young people are raised and educated influences how they think and act. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I totally believe uh, if we there, there is some other way that we could do things that would produce more Einsteins. But I don't really claim to know what that way is. Yeah, I, I don't know what that way is either. Um, but but I do have a pro sort of a problem with the way science is taught. I, I do think that actually almost all science denialism in culture comes from a misunderstanding of the scientific method. So we talked about the scientific method earlier and how it is generally taught to be pretty clean. And I think that when certain people f see a, a dirty spot, they see a gap in cleanliness. Oh. Um, they don't assume that that is a, a blemish that the scientific method is aiming to f fix they think that the, they've discovered a conspiracy, if you will. And I don't think everyone's walking around being like, I have a conspiracy, a scientific conspiracy. Um, I don't think they're outward about it. I think it's more of a subconscious thing where they're like, hmm, um, scientific method is meant to operate in these five steps. Here's a weird thing that science can't explain, and now they're trying to scramble to explain it. And it instills a little bit of doubt because we don't ever teach that science is really, really messy. Part of that, I think, comes from the fact that we only teach science that is solved. We teach yeah. a lot of science that is solved. And when we teach science that is solved, we tend to revisionize the history a little. And we tend to pretend that that science was actually solved very cleanly, when in fact it was solved very, very messily. Uh, do you think that's a huge problem in the way that we talk to, talk to people about science at a young age? I do. And I prefer to teach my Astronomy 101 style classes through a like historical narrative. Mm -hmm. So you understand not only, you know, how Kepler's laws of planetary orbits motion work, but also, you know, what Kepler had to work with when he came up with them, what the other competing ideas were at the time, what things worked and what things didn't. And also Kepler had a bunch of wrong ideas too. And here were some of them were like, to me, that a is just a lot more interesting. Yeah. That's why I teach it that way. If I'm being honest. But B, I think, you know, it's useful to understand that science isn't a straight line from wrong to right. It's meandering and it only improves our knowledge in a, you know, kind of random walky sort of way. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I think the internet definitely doesn't help foster new ideas in science. Um, in theory, it should, because it should allow so many different people to collaborate and talk to one another. Um, but, but particularly for students, I think it's problematic. Because one of the 
real benefits of, of, or one of the aspects of learning science that I think is lost is the idea of working through problems tirelessly, like working through problems that you don't understand, even in like a, a class, like an E&M class or something. Uh, very few students work through problems that they don't understand for long periods of time and try to, you know, attempt new solutions at, at, at this problem. A lot of people, and, I, and I'm guilty of doing this at times, uh, run to the, the Google machine, you know, and say, hmm, how do I, how do I fix this, this issue? How do I solve this problem? And I hope that does not result in my generation of scientists being less, uh, ingenious in our, in our discoveries. But, but I really think that the internet is, is not doing us any favors in this field. It's doing yeah, us I mean, a lot of favors, only- a lot of favors, but not, some, some favors, not so much. The only caution I'll throw on that is that if you think about just about any point in modern history, any current generation is very prone to look at those a generation or two younger than them and say, like, because of this factor, this factor, or that factor, these kids are somehow not as good or smarter or hardworking or whatever. Yeah. And it's, you know, kind of just BS. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm not talking about younger generations. I should preface. I'm not saying younger generations. Oh, your own generation. I'm talking about me. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I'll just say this is the students I work with at the University of Chicago and elsewhere, um, they seem to be just as capable, if not more, than those when, you know, I was a grad student 20 years ago. Good. That's what I like to hear. Um, And I'm not trying to say any young people are terrible. That's not the goal. Okay, I am in that, I am in that, uh, in order to call young people terrible, I would have to call me terrible. And I don't want to call me terrible, um, at least not today. So maybe in the panda, in the pandemic depression, you know, week 84 of the pandemic, I will, uh, be more willing to call myself, uh, terrible, but not today. So you seem all right with me. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I want to go back to something that, that we sort of glazed over, um, as we, as we get near, wrapping the conversation up. I want to uh to to jump back to this uh this idea of NASA detecting a parallel universe which we talked about. First off, do you know like the the actual in and out of that like how that got so yeah. misconstrued? You do? Yeah. So we we've already talked about like these two events, they could come from decaying dark matter particles, etc. Sure. Yeah. Um so there was a paper that had nothing to do with Anita where uh where they proposed um something called a CPT conserving universe um, where when the universe, when our universe was created, it was created alongside a anti-universe. Sure. And uh, so there's all the matter in one and all the antimatter in the other. It's kind okay. of designed to, to uh, solve that problem I talked about before. Yep. And they did, you know, they calculated some things and given the assumptions they started with and stuff, they made a specific prediction for um, the dark matter candidate in, in its mass. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that that mass is, it's not exactly, but it's like kind of close to the mass you would need for the dark matter to explain the Anita events. Sure. So that paper exists. And now a different group comes along and they say, well, there's these Anita events. Maybe those particles that those guys in the CPT paper wrote about, those particles are accumulated in the Earth's core where they decay, making these events. And therefore, um, if that's true, then there really is a universe and an anti-universe. Mm-hmm. And then the press got a hold of this, and a bunch of people wrote 
articles about NASA discovering a parallel universe. Yeah. Isn't it always weird that Na- it's always NASA? That's one yeah. of the weirdest things to me. It's like, I assume NASA funded them. I, I assume that's where the NASA tagline came from. Or they just yes, assume... I actually don't know which funding agency is behind Anita offhand. Huh. Okay, well, it's it's possible that, like, the American media just thinks all scientists are NASA. I kind of get that a lot. I get that one. Do you get that one a lot? Well, NASA is certainly the most well-known sure. scientific agency. Yeah. Um, and for pretty great reasons. Um, but it's not the only game in town. Right. A, a lot of people on the street wouldn't recognize the NSF as being a right. funding agency off the top of their head. Or the Department of Energy, sure. or the National Institute of Health, yeah. or whatever. But NASA. So he's NASA. We all work for NASA. Um, but now the tagline, NASA detects parallel universe, made huge headlines. Like, I saw it on it everywhere, right? I saw it constantly. I'm, did you get, like, bombarded with emails since you're kind of yeah. in this field? You did? Yeah. Yeah. So lots. what role do you think that plays in science discourse? Do you think it's a good thing? Because it, it got my hairdresser interested, you know? Yeah. Uh, or do you think it's like maybe this level of sensationalism probably not good overall? So I, I tend to be okay with more sensationalism than a lot of my colleagues are. Sure, me too, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember having a debate years ago when there was this experiment who wrote a paper saying. You know, we, we've tried all the things we can, and we the only way we have to understand our results are is if neutrinos are traveling faster than the speed of light. If that were true, it would be enormously big deal. Mm-hmm. Einstein's wrong, all that stuff, right? And um, the press went, you know, bananas. And uh, the vast majority of, of professional physicists thought, like, well, this experiment's going to be shown to be wrong. We're, yeah. we're, we're really, really sure. Mm-hmm. And if they aren't, it's a super big deal, sure. But almost certainly they're just wrong. Yep. And the press went wild and wild and wild. And then the experiment, people running the experiment found out that some of the cables had been improperly uh, plugged in. And when that was corrected, they could explain the anomaly. And it turns out neutrinos travel at the speed they're supposed to. So the debate that I had with my colleagues is I said, well, nobody was lying. Mm-hmm. The experiment, you know, we were being honest. Is that right now the experiment says this. It looks like neutrinos are traveling faster than light, and that would be a really big deal. And we're going to keep looking and trying to understand this. So everyone's being honest. And it got a ton of people really excited about physics for a a moment, at Mm -hmm. least. And also what most people really remember, if you ask them, and there were some studies about this. Like you ask people a week, a month, three months, a year later after they hear the story. What they really remember is something about Einstein, speed of light, these particles called neutrinos, and maybe Einstein being wrong. And like all that sounds pretty cool yeah. and, and interesting. Mm-hmm. They don't actually remember the details. I mean, I wouldn't either if I were hearing some story about the intricacies of DNA or something. Right. Um, I might go like, oh, cool stuff's going on in biology. That sounds pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I'd walk away with. So I think we have an obligation to be honest. But if we want to talk to journalists about some of the more sensational parts of our work, honestly, I think that's probably fine. Now, I think in the Anita parallel dimension thing, there might be some overstepping. Like I wouldn't, if I were talking to a journalist about that, I would say this is almost certainly a much more mundane thing. 
but there's this idea and I just like we did, you know, I would describe yeah. the idea and what, why people think things that they think. Um, and, and, you know, it's some sort of possibility maybe. Um, and maybe they did that and the journalist was, you know, left out the words of caution and just reported on the sensationalist part that, that happens sometimes. Or maybe the scientist was being overzealous when they talked to the journalist or some combination of the two. It's hard. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I'm on, I'm in favor generally of sensationalism. It is, again, as you're saying, as long as, as long as it's truthful. Like, for example, if the, if we, if we found out that the Event Horizon Telescope images were complete nonsense right now, I would say that that was actually a, a, an overall plus for science. I would say the fact that we, we came out with them, well, I should say for science outreach, because that was an event that, that got so many people interested in science for a short amount of time. Now, do I think that they're nonsense? No, of course not. I think that's an excellent work. But my point is, if, if there was some, like, you know, weird anomaly in the in the radio receiver that caused us to see a, a, a ring of radio radiation in all of our telescopes, of course, that's not happening. Um, but I would say it's a general plus for science. And, and I think that there is some room for sensationalism. And I think that's actually how you get more people interested, which we yeah. tend not to do. I agree, but we also have to be careful to like keep our credibility exactly. solid. Yes. Right? So, sure. So um, don't lie. You know, yeah. Yeah. Don't lie and don't exaggerate things, you know, overly or something. You can be excited about something. That's fine. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you know, it, it, don't go to the journalist and say, we probably just discovered an extra or a parallel dimension. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, you go to the journalist and say, well, there's one way to interpret these events, which probably, you know, are, are have a mundane origin, but if they mm -hmm. don't, one way to interpret them is this could tell us about a parallel universe. Like, okay. Then you've done your due diligence at that point. Sure. Say. Yeah. I, I agree. A hundred percent. So you, Dan have, have used your quarantine time to do some, some good in the world. You've started a, a show of your own. Right. Yeah. Why this universe? A weekly podcast with my co-host Shalma Wegsman. Uh, Shalma was an undergraduate physics major at University of Chicago, and she and I did research together. We wrote a couple of papers, and uh, she took this course on uh, podcasting, and we got to talking. And next thing you know, we start trying our own hands at it, and uh, I'm pretty happy with how it's turned out. We do these like twenty or thirty minute punchy. Uh, physics shows on things that we think are really cool, like quantum physics and dark matter and black holes and wild stuff like that. Yeah. I, I really, really like it. I do. I thank you. I, are you going to try to do it every single week? That's the, that is the ambition. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't surprise me if we fall a little short of that, but sure. that is the plan. That's yeah. the plan. Right. Um, yeah, I, I try to do every week except for, I take kind of two breaks a year. I take like a couple week break in June, couple week break in December. Um, but generally it's kind of feasible to do. And it's a little easier with not having to get guests and things. So, um, I have faith in your ability to keep it up. I, I really am, am impressed. I listened to the first episode and I was impressed at the overall like production. It sounds like clean, very, very good. When I started, Dan. Shalma deserves all the credit for that. She does all, you know, the bulk of the edit, well, all the editing and, yeah. and, uh, and like a lot of the design is hers. Mm. I'll have to have her on the show sometime if she's, I bet she'd be it. thrilled. Yeah. Um, I, I would, I would be happy to. Wegsman is her last name. Yeah. There's a Wegmans here. 
and and I thought that her last name was Wegmans when I first listened to your your podcast, and I thought she was like a grocery store tycoon in a grocery store tycoon <laughs> family, but I don't think that's the case. Not to my knowledge. Yeah, unless she like changed it, did a, did a little anagram type thing. Um, but anyway, the the show is excellent. I implore the the people listening to go check it out. A lot of people, Dan, complain at me that my show is maybe a little too like informal in the sense that we go on these you know hour and a half long tirade conversations and. And you listen to it, and you should come away with a really like a decent understanding of whatever the topic is. But at the same time, it's kind of meant for you to just put on and then listen to, and 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 also a little thought provoking. You get like different philosophical concepts. But your your podcast is a popular science book wrapped up into a, th- a twenty five minute uh, piece of audio, and that it's fantastic for what it is. It is thanks. It is um. It is a level of like scientific. Do you do you do like choreography in there? It it um like scripting. And yeah, stuff? that sort of thing. It, we 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 like sometimes script like an introduction or something. Sure, mm-hmm. but mostly it's just those two of us talking, and you know we we record for forty five minutes, and Shalma edits it down to twenty five, taking the best parts. Sure, um you know, but no, not 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 particularly scripted. Yeah, so the fact that it's not scripted is is impressive because um. You, you do such a good job of just covering a dense amount of material in an excellent way. And I, I do think that that form of, of science outreach in the podcasting community is not quite there. A lot of people are doing the conversations. A lot of people are doing, you know, something similar to what I'm doing. And so I, I think you will see a, a lot of success in this, in this, cause you, you did kind of tap a vein that I'm not sure has been well mined. As yeah, a- and when we set out to do this, we kind of looked at the landscape of other podcasts, including mm-hmm. your own, and like we didn't really want to compete directly with any of the really good ones, right? Um, and there are several like ones that I think are really good. So we are like, well, what what is not being done right now that we think we could do pretty well? And we settled on what are the format we 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 uh you know we settled on our format because yeah. we thought there was kind of a whole there to that that people might be interested right yeah and and um you know there is no competition though dan don't ever worry about competing with with uh people we're on the same team yes we are on the same team um and that's what i love about this form of art is that we all agree we're all scientists and we're trying to make this this cool product and we all say well let's make the product a little differently and we will all attract a different group of people willing to listen you know you might attract a you know someone The cool thing about podcasting is that you attract, you know, just people from all over the world. So you can imagine there's some some guy in Singapore who listens to you, Dan, for 20 minutes on 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 his way to on his bike ride to work um, because he is interested in physics. And uh, you know, I get the I get the dude in Appalachia who doesn't have a door on his house. So that's what I get. And you know, we get science out to both of them, and that's what's important. Yeah, I you know, I wish that I had access to this sort of stuff when I was young or something. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I might've discovered a lot of stuff to be excited about a lot earlier in my life. Yeah. And that's the goal. Everyone's listening to podcasts. People are so interested in science. Science has never been more accessible ever. So I love that you've sort of got yourself in this community and I think more people should do it. I, you know, some people say there's too many podcasts, man. I don't think there is enough podcasts. I think that there <laughs> yeah. is a lot of room for a lot more. As more and more people listen, more and more and more. I mean, you're going to be talking about billions of people listening. Um, there's not going to be a monopoly uh, anytime soon. Let a soon. million flowers bloom. Yes, exactly. So 
I, I love that that you're pursuing that. I hope that the the pandy goes away soon and you can start playing music again. Um, yeah, me too. Are you able to do like socially distanced performances or nothing? I have. I mean, I haven't played music with really anyone but myself for since oh, no. March. So yeah, yeah. Oh, do Do you think your skills are like dwindling? They're changing. Um, I'm getting really good at playing by myself. I'm like got techniques I never had before mm. for like kind of, you know, finger style acoustic playing. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure that when I play with my band next, I'm going to flub a lot of solos. Yeah. I, uh, I wonder if there's like, I'm kind of afraid to go on airplanes now because I, there's so many people who've taken so long off of work and are going to lose some important skills at their job. And I'm going to stay away from pilots for a long time. I don't, I don't know if I trust them yet. There's like, there's a lot of skills out there that are getting rusty in this, in these couple months. And, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stay away. So it's like driving. Everyone's gotten universally worse at driving as traffic has gotten worse, like, you know, sort of picked up again in the city. Everyone was, I don't know if everyone was always this bad at driving, but people are so bad at driving now. It's, I haven't noticed. It's horrendous. Do you go out a lot? No. Oh, see, that's your problem. You got to go drive around, you know, burn some fossil fuels, get it, get out there. So I don't know. Anyway, Dan, it's, 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 uh, if there's anything left you want to talk about, we're happy to, but if not, we can, we can head out. I think we're good. I All think right. we're good. This has been great. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for being here. And, uh, and I go. like your rapport. It's very easy to, to chat with you. Good. I, that's the goal. The goal is to, uh, but you know, you, you also have to be easy to chat with. That's the thing. Cause there's some yeah. people I've had on the show who like, they don't give anything back to me. And so I'm acting goofy over here and they're like, it's sort of thinking they're at a conference talk. And it's a we- yeah, it has a, to be a, a better match. Yeah, it's a weird situation to be in because uh, I am I do not try to be formal. I mean, I'm wearing a T-shirt. It says Ultimate Fighting on it. I mean, what are we doing here? <laughs> um, anyway, so th- thanks for being here, Dan. Thanks for listening, sure people. Thing, and we're out.